0: If you would open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. Once again, we're going to look at uh, what we did last week, which is verses seventeen through twenty. Let's read this first, and then and then get into it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth: until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. In studying the Sermon on the Mount, I think the big question that arises is, did Jesus come to start a new religion? Is Jesus starting something quite distinct from Judaism that we find in the Old Testament? Is this the beginning of something new? I think this is a question that most people answer incorrectly. In fact, many Christians do as well. And if you get it incorrectly, then it allows you to make Jesus into whomever you want him to be and have his sayings mean whatever you want them to mean. So as we start today, let me just, let's assume, for the sake of argument, let's assume that Jesus did come to start a new religion. He didn't, and we'll see that as we go along, but let's assume that he did. What would be the historical context, the cultural context, religious context, even linguistic context? In short, what is the backstory? I find it amazing that people ignore these questions as though someone could suddenly appear in history without any of these contexts applying to them. And as someone who teaches history, I can tell you that this is a common mistake, which in my opinion is oftentimes the result of laziness, that people simply want to project themselves back into the past and imagine that people back then are just like them, you know, minus the technologies. You know, we have the technologies, they didn't, uh, but basically they're just the same as us. They have the same background, the same thought patterns, the same values, um, It's simply not the case. The example I use when I teach is of the movie A Knight's Tale with the late Heath Ledger. I don't know if you remember that, uh, set in the medieval period. But amazingly, people are singing songs written by Queen and dancing to David Bowie. And you know, obviously, they know that David Bowie songs weren't danced to back then, but somehow that's the way people oftentimes look at the past and figures in the past. They don't imagine a backstory; They imagine the backstory is what we have. And so when people hear Jesus saying certain things, they imagine him saying them in our context today, and then it can mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. I think that Jesus is often thought of without any historical context at all. Um, that he just suddenly appeared, um, people would say, well, it's, of course he didn't speak English, but I think in many ways that's what they imagine. Um, okay, he wore the robes because that's what people used to wear, but, but pretty much he was like an American back at the first century of this era. Um, no, but all of this to say that if Jesus, in fact, did start a new religion, Let's say for the sake of argument, he did set an, or start a new religion. It would have to be within a certain context. His listeners are Jewish, so he can't, if you, for the sake of argument, he can't start speaking Klingon to them because they don't know what that is. He speaks Aramaic. He shares their history and we, ha- we know that from his genealogy which goes back to Abraham and Matthew's account. He ate the same food that they did and he shared a vocabulary with them. Not only in terms of language, but also in terms of custom. So when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, and he says blessed, his listeners who are Jewish understand this from the book of Psalms to mean one who has God's favor. And by God, they mean the one who created the world, the one who sustains the world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Zib read to us, someone who is not ashamed to be called the God of his people. What Jesus springs on them is they think, well, I know blessed means to have God's favor, and God is the creator, he is the Lord of hosts. What Jesus springs on them is they think that to be blessed means to be prosperous, to be rich. And he starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That they were not expecting. But let's ask ourselves what if Jesus wasn't starting a new religion how are we to see him in what context specifically what is his relationship to the Old Testament and I think many of his listeners may have had these thoughts as well here comes a new guy he's about 30 years old seems to I mean he's from Nazareth but you know not from a great family people don't seem to know who he is and then suddenly here he is teaching is this some new doctrine? Is this some new teaching? In our text, which we began looking at last Sunday, Jesus makes it clear that his backstory, the context, is the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He is not standing out in the middle of nowhere with nothing surrounding him. There is a backstory to him. There is a background. The two key words we saw last week are the words abolish and fulfill. Fulfill. We spent more time on fulfill but abolish is important in part because it provides a reference point. That is when Jesus says, "I have not come to abolish them, the law and prophets, but to fulfill them." We may safely assume that abolish and fulfill are opposites. You know, I didn't come to do this, I came to do this. Therefore, these two things in fact must be opposites. Abolish means to annul, to repeal, to make invalid. Fulfill, on the other hand, means to affirm, to validate, to confirm, and to establish. And the question then arises, in what sense did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? To what end? As we saw last week, he confirmed them to be scripture. They aren't simply the backstory to his life. They are that. But they are scripture, and that's what he's telling his listeners. Jesus confirms them to be truth. And what is the truth of scripture? It is a revelation of God, that what the law and the prophets tell us about God is true. Having said that, it's not always easy to understand. I mean, some of the things we're told about God in the Old Testament, frankly, make us cringe. But Jesus says they are truth, and he had come to confirm he's not starting something new. The Old Testament is the revelation of God. And Jesus is God in the flesh, the supreme revelation of God. They're obviously connected. You can't have two different revelations and them not agree. So he has come to fulfill scripture. In the Old Testament, we have the revelation of God. In the New Testament, we also have the revelation of God. In the New Testament, Jesus is that supreme revelation, God in the flesh and the backstory is there it is the law and the prophets we read in scripture of jesus that he is the image of the invisible god the one in whom god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell the radiance of god's glory the exact representation of his being this is the same god that we see in the old testament in the law and the prophets and jesus affirms them to be true some might say yeah well I'll accept part of your premise that the Old Testament is a revelation of God and even a revelation of Jesus but it's all shadows and types uh, symbols if you wish and figures um, now that Jesus has come we don't need that anymore they were all pointing ahead a sort of shadowy incomplete form now we have the complete version we have Jesus of Nazareth we don't need the Old Testament anymore right the answer is no. Jesus comes to tell us, or tells us, he did not come to abolish it. He didn't come to do away with it. hey, I'm here. You can now forget about the law and the prophets. I've mentioned this many times before, but one of the things, I'm not an expert on art. Uh, I think I'm an expert on what I like, but not necessarily what's good art. But the one thing that I appreciate, for example, with Van Gogh is the use of shadow. I mean, uh, people rave about Kincaid's light paintings, but sometimes we need shadow for contrast. And the Old Testament, I think, is critical there. That yes, it is shadow, it is symbolic, it isn't sort of as clear as we might like it to be, but sometimes that's what we need. And when Jesus comes, he is the light, and these shadows sort of point to who he is, and they're incredibly important. In verse 18, which is where we'll start today, Jesus illustrates the validity of the law and the durability of the law. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Its validity is seen that it is all scripture, the smallest letter. In English it would be the letter I, in Hebrew it's Yod. Uh, In Greek, it'd be iota, Uh, the smallest letter, the smallest stroke, dotting the I. Can there be anything smaller in writing? It is all important. It's all valid. And it is durable. Two things that Jesus mentions here, until heaven and earth pass away and until everything is accomplished. Until heaven and earth disappear, what can this mean? Well, it's the end of human history. Interestingly enough, in scripture, we're not told about heaven and earth disappearing as much as we're told about there being a new heaven and a new earth, Second Peter 3. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. In Revelation 21, the next to the last chapter in the Bible, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There we find it, the mentioning of this reality passing away and there being a new heaven and a new earth. But what I would point out to you is that this is, in fact, referencing something mentioned in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, behold, I will create a new heaven, or new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. As we've seen in the series on creation, it's all pointing toward a telos, the new creation. But until the new creation comes, the law, the prophets are valid and they will have enduring validity. And then Jesus says until everything is accomplished, again, God's purpose for his creation is the new creation, that is the telos. We are a part of that purpose, we're not simply here biding our time, waiting until the end of things. The creator has a purpose for his creation, and on the day of resurrection, everything will be accomplished. Then Jesus speaks of the authority of the Old Testament. If you look at verse number 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a certain confusion over over the word least here. Um, Both in terms of the least of these commandments and least in the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean by the least of these commandments? I'll point out two things. First of all, he's not speaking of importance, the least important of these commandments. Um, That somehow uh, there's this, You know, this gradation, if you wish, of laws and commandments, and you have important ones and the least important. In chapter 23, as Jesus is condemning the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he says, Woe to you hypocrites, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. That is to say, justice, mercy, and faithfulness are important. I think we would all agree. But so is the tithing of spices, as Jesus points out. He doesn't say abandon that tithing business and let's just go for justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In chapter 22, the chapter right before that, Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment. And he says, as you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment which must mean that there is if there's a greatest then there must be a least commandment there's no question that Jesus attached more importance to some commandments than others but they are all given by God and should be recognized as such so it's not importance that is the issue it is significance and here I think it goes in a different direction than we might expect the significance is not in the mind of Jesus (coughs) but in the mind of the listener. There are people who would say that commandment really isn't important. It's not significant. Jesus said they're all important, okay, from the greatest to the least. But there are some who would say that they are not significant. And this is seen in two things, excuse me. First of all, breaking that commandment, it doesn't matter if you keep it or not, but even worse is the second, teaching others to do it, to say hey, I break that commandment all the time, no biggie, don't worry about it, you can as well. The reality is we all break the commandments of God. John wrote in his first epistle, everyone who sins breaks the law, in fact sin is lawlessness. Oftentimes we deliberately break God's commandments. This is a reflection of our own sinfulness. This is not what Jesus is speaking about. Rather, he is pointing to the attitude in one's heart and mind that this particular commandment isn't worth keeping. It doesn't matter if I break it or not. And then teaching others to do the same. Why would someone say it's okay to break this commandment? Because there is an attitude that this is least. You know, in the scale of things, this is at the bottom, and, and you don't need to worry about those at the bottom. Such an attitude fails to recognize that it is God's law that it is abiding, and that it has validity. God's law is authoritative, we are not. God's law sits in judgment on us, not the other way around. Though in practice, oftentimes, we sit in judgment on God's law and say, well, that's really not that important. Jesus warns, if you wish, in this passage, if we belittle scripture, then we will be little in the kingdom. If we think or teach that something is least, then we ourselves will be least in the Kingdom of Heaven. There are consequences to this. It means being least in the Kingdom of Heaven. And to be honest, I'm not sure what this means. I do see some things here. That if we treat something as least, we will become least. We find something similar to this in Luke if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. The way in which we we treat the law of God is the way in which we, in fact, ourselves will be treated. If we belittle it, we will, in fact, belittle in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, obedience is preferred to disobedience in the kingdom of heaven. Um, One might say, well, of course... But I think we forget that sometimes. To be a child of God is to be an obedient person, not a disobedient person. And then lastly, you'll notice that the contrast is between least and great, not least and greatest. Uh, I find that interesting. I think it reflects a person's position, or our position reflects our view of Scripture. How do we look at Scripture? You know, I think for most people today, many Christians, in fact, if we didn't have the Old Testament at all, it would not bother them. And if we we say, no, 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 Damon, I think the Old Testament is important, let's be honest, there's certain parts of the Old Testament that we'd rather not read, particularly when you get into the genealogies or in Leviticus with all the sacrifices, but it is, in fact, scripture, and we should recognize it as well. In verse number 20, Jesus illustrates the application of scripture. He's already done this in verses 17 and 19. He uses a contrast. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The contrast is between your righteousness and the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. I think there are two things intended here. One is primary and one is secondary. I'll do the secondary first because I, not to get it out of the way, but I think it is worth mentioning. We've seen in this series that there are two types of righteousness that we find in the New Testament. The legal righteousness, which makes us right with God, that reconciles us to God. Um, This requires absolute, perfect, complete obedience. This we are not capable of doing. We cannot be made right with God based on our obedience. We simply cannot. But there is one who can and did fulfill the law, who kept the law, who was perfectly righteous, and that's the Lord Jesus. Okay. The second type of righteousness is moral righteousness. This is the obedience that God requires of his people. Obviously, it is incomplete. It is imperfect. We fail left and right, but God has given us his commands and we are to obey them. So the contrast here between our righteousness and that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is a contrast of kind, not degree, that we do better things than they do. It is we're trusting the Lord Jesus for our salvation. They're trusting themselves. They're saying, listen, we're going to be made right with God by the things we do. And Jesus says, if you're playing that game, Yeah, you're not going to make it. But if we trust the Lord Jesus, as we saw in our prayer of confession today, then in fact, what we are called to do is to be obedient and not trust in our obedience to get us on God's good side, if you wish. Jesus tells his listeners that unless we have a different kind of righteousness, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But this is secondary, I don't think this is the primary point that Jesus is making. The primary point is how you view the law. There were three sects within Judaism when Jesus came into the world. There were the Sadducees who controlled the temple, they were the priests. Uh, They did not believe in the soul, the immortality of the soul. Did not believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels, anything spiritual or supernatural the Pharisees or the Sadducees did not believe in. They were pure materialists, okay? Then you have the Essenes, a desert sect of men, never mentioned in the New Testament, interestingly enough. They're the people responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we have the Pharisees. They are the traditionalists. They held to the law. They controlled the synagogues. They were the rabbis. See, to be in the temple, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And to be a priest, you had to be from the house of Aaron. Well, to be a rabbi, you could be from any tribe, and you could be a rabbi. They were the primary adversaries of Jesus. In 70 AD, the Sadducees and Essenes are wiped out, leaving only the Pharisees. And the form of Judaism that they espoused, rabbinic Judaism from rabbis, is what has survived to the present day, where the rabbi is the ultimate authority. They focused on the law, And, not the law in the big sense, but in the tiny details of the law. They taught that there were 613 commandments, 248 positive, 365 that are negative. They were all external commands. That's how you're supposed to do certain things. We hear Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew rebuking the Pharisees because they really ignored the matters of the heart. They focus on the detail, but they miss the big picture. As Jesus put it, you strain at a gnat, but swallow a camel. And it is this attitude that Jesus condemns, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That is, in terms of moral righteousness, obedience, both the inner person and the outer person are important, and they are to be in obedience to God's commands. The Pharisees should have known this. This should not have been some shocking new revelation, some shocking new information that they had never, if they knew the Old Testament, they should have known this. Do you remember when Samuel was told by God, I've rejected Saul and he sends him to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And he goes to the house of Jesse who has seven sons and one by one they come to him and each one, Samuel's like, this is the one, this is the one, but we read, When Samuel saw Eliab and thought Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord But the Lord said to Samuel Do not consider his appearance or his height For I have rejected him The Lord does not look at the things man looks at Man looks at the outward appearance But the Lord looks at the heart Did the Pharisees not know this? Is this a news flash that they had never heard before? I don't think so it goes on for seven sons, by the way, the seven sons of Jesse, and he's like, do you have any more sons? And there's like, yeah, there's some guy, you know, the youngest taking care of the sheep. And when they bring him, the Lord says, he is the one. And this is David, who became the king of Israel and the line of the Messiah. They should have known. In Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. My heart. I sh- The Pharisees should have known this. David wrote in Psalm 37, the mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. They should have known this. In the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus gives us six illustrations of a proper understanding of God's law in which it isn't simply about the external realities, but what is in your heart, or what is in your mind. This is in contrast to the Pharisees. So what Jesus teaches is against the backstory of the law and the prophets, it's not something new. He is in fact saying, this is what it's all about. The Pharisees had gotten people off track, the Sadducees certainly had, they don't even believe in angels or the immortality of the soul. Jesus comes, if you wish, to get people on track and to explain to them the law and the prophets. He did not come to start a new religion. I think a lot of people would rather believe that he did. They would like to reject the Old Testament, to say that it has no application for us. Um, And the New Testament is all about love. There are no rules, it's just about grace and love. I spoke on this, I think, 24 years ago, and I was looking through my notes, and it so happened I was watching TV, and I saw a Christian leader speaking, and he said exactly the opposite of what I've just said. He said, in the law, there is no grace. In the law, there is no grace, and in grace, there is no law. Well, then you're talking about two very, very different things that have no connection. Then Jesus did come to start a new religion, but no, he didn't. The law and the prophets, that's the backstory. And here comes God in the flesh. I think the Re- reformers, when the Reformation started, they understood the Old Testament as being important far better than we do today. In a Scottish catechism from the 16th century, what profit do the faithful derive from the law? It puts them daily in remembrance of their sins. What good fruit can come from that? Humility and earnest reliance on Christ. Listen, you read the law and it, it beats you up because you're just, we fail point after point after point. And hopefully it opens our eyes and we run to Christ because we are poor in spirit and he alone can give us grace. In another catechism from the 16th century, the Heidelberg Catechism, first in that the law shows them that they cannot justify themselves in their works. That certainly is plain in the Old Testament. It humbles them and disposes them to seek their salvation in Jesus Christ because we can't save ourselves. Secondly, inasmuch as it requires of them much more than they are able to perform, it admonishes them to pray unto the Lord that he may give them strength and power. It's just like, I can't do this. I'm not able. I do not have the strength. At the same time, it perpetually reminds them of their guilt that they may not presume to be proud. Third, it is a kind of bridle by which they are kept in the fear of the Lord. And no wonder people don't like the Old Testament. The excuse they give is you've got all those weird names and, you know, it's just sometimes it's just really dry. The reality is it is God's truth. It is revelation, and it's to be treated as such. Jesus certainly did. He certainly did, and we should as well. I think we need to recognize that if all we have is the New Testament, our picture of Jesus is much thinner. It's much shallower. But because of the Old Testament, as it points to Jesus, we are given a more complete picture of God in the flesh. Emmanuel, that is God with us. Let's pray together. Our father, the reality is I think oftentimes we're just lazy. We have too many other things to occupy our time. And if it requires a bit of effort, we seem unwilling to do that. But the Old Testament is your revelation. It is scripture. It is truth. It is the backstory against which Jesus comes into the world. We can only understand him if we understand that backstory. I think it's human nature. We don't want anyone to be the boss of us. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And when we read the Old Testament, that's what we hear, it seems like, on every page. You telling us what to do. But you created us. You made us. We are made in your image. You know what is best for us. We don't because we're messed up by sin. We like to think, as little children, that we know what is best. The reality is we do not. Help us to see as your people that the Lord Jesus did not come to get rid of the Old Testament, but to confirm it as truth. And as such, it should be very important to us. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We thank you for the great news about uh, uh, Zib's Transfer her moving to downtown means a lot less traveling. And we are so grateful for this wonderful news. I pray that you would guide each one of us in this coming week. In our joys and in our sorrows. May we always look to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.